from Austin, and welcome to episode 198 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday afternoon, it's April 5th, 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Lodick. It's opening day. Opening Mets day. Opening day for the Mets and nobody else. (laughs) That's right. Um, Yeah, that's a a little reminder that uh, for Major League Baseball, COVID is going to continue to be a rocky ride. Uh, and of, of course, it was the Mets uh, and the Nats who got disrupted right off the bat. Not the, I mean, it's, it's the, come on, it's the Nats' fault. I mean, this wasn't a Mets thing. If, if, it was totally the Nats' fault, but it feels very Metsy that it would happen. Well, cause, right, because all, all these people like us were so excited. Like, we were actually affirmatively excited for opening days. Like, the Mets are going to be good this year. We're excited. We're excited. We're excited. And we're just not going to start. No. Well, and I especially wanted to see that DeGrom-Scherzer matchup. Yes. That was going to be fun. We'll see it again this year. Yes, we will. And maybe again in the postseason. In exchange, we got, I think, one of the great college basketball games of all time. Oof. Boy, yeah. Uh, I, made, I made the right call staying up to watch that game. That really was a, a, a jaw-dropping finish. I mean... But not just the finish. I mean, the... No, the whole game was good. Whole, yeah. like, like, this is... So, I'm not, you know, of course, everyone on Twitter wants to, you know, wants to show how smart they are. And so, I tweeted right after the game ended... Um, Saturday night, I tweeted like that was you know one of the greatest college basketball games of all time and the greatest I've ever seen. And all these people are like, "What about this game with this shot and this game with this shot?" I'm like, it's not just how it ended. Like the game itself, the quality of play, both teams shooting 58 percent from the field. I mean, like you know, no team was ever up by more than seven. Um, There's only a minute and 45 seconds in the whole game, like where where it wasn't where it was a, more than a two possession game. I mean, it was it was an amazing game. Okay, so how is UCLA that good given where they were for most of the season? They got high. Is this just showing you that, you know, it's it's timing's everything and so I mean I think a couple of things are true. One, I think they were they were underseeded, um, as everyone in the Pac twelve was, because there wasn't as much interconference play this year. And so, you know, it's the, easy to forget the West Coast because of Pacific time. And and the sort of anti Pac twelve bias that comes through a lot. I think there was no there were no data points to counter that. So imagine if UCLA had been seeded had been a six or a seven seed instead of an eleven yeah, seed. Sure. Right. And then they just and but but a six or a seven seed that got hot at the right time. And I think that's a big part of the story. Yeah, it makes sense. And it, and that makes sense, especially to ha- to get that hot from where they were perceived to be, uh, makes a lot of sense in a COVID impacted season where you're more likely than in a normal year to have teams coalesce later. And that's a testament to coaching because that suggests that the coaching is really doing something. Great. Oh no, Mick Cronin, I think has, has, you know, he's, he's not going anywhere. No, that, that he made himself, he's not, he, there were several people who made themselves some money in that, in the latest game. So we do do want to get to um, actual national security law, but we also want to flag that um, two weeks from today, Monday, April 19th, we are going to be recording our 200th episode. Um, and as promised, it's going to be a live webinar, um, uh, uh, which <laughs> could, could have all kinds of implications. But, you know. Well, yes. So you may be thinking like webinar. Oh, that's lame. I want to just be like in a Zoom room directly, like a classroom. We thought about that. Um, right now we're thinking we're, it's probably wiser to keep this as a in the webinar format where um, you'll, you'll be there listening to it recorded live if you choose to attend. Right. And you can, and you can, we you can, can submit questions, questions. you can put stuff in the yeah. chat, but we, but, but we get to control. <laughs> the control. <laughs> anyway, so um, it's going to be um, 8.30 Eastern, 7.30 Central, 5.30 Pacific. Yes, I skipped the mountain, the mountain time zone. Um, it's going to be on April 19th, and we will, of course, circulate a link and details on how to register if you want to watch it live and participate. Um, as we get closer, I think, you know, the the big theme for the show is going to be sort of ask us anything, right, Bobby? So Probably so. Although, you know, I will predict now that some crazy stuff will happen between now and then. What? So we'll have actual right national security law will actually happen? It's, really, it, it keeps happening. It keeps happening, even in a new administration. Although, so, you know, in theory, I mean, if in theory, if that's going to be episode two hundred, we're going to have to have an episode between now and then. All right, because that that will uh, require us to actually have an episode one ninety nine, unless we want to just create weirdness by not. So, you know, but for, next week, for a long time, I you know they were they, for a long time they were talking about making a, making a sequel to Spaceballs and the. The, the the subtitle the title for Spaceballs that the the, the, oh, the no. work of the title of the movie oh, was no. Spaceballs Three The Search oh, for Spaceballs Two. Oh, okay, that's that's, that's could have been worse. Um, <laughs> well, they they should do it. Um, 
there are actually any number of, well, I was about to say there's any number of movie uh, trilogies and beyond where it would have been fine to skip the second episode. But actually, very often it's the second, it's the sequel. It's part two that's often where the action is. Uh, see Star Wars, right? I mean, Star Trek, right? And uh, I wouldn't say that about Star Wars because I think it's more than just Empire. That's uh, of good. course, people might point out that Star Trek was not a true trilogy. No, no, that's why I said trilogy or beyond. Yeah, yeah. I know, but yeah, yeah anyway. Um, all right, so we actually do have things in the realm of national security law to talk about. We're gonna we're gonna review a uh, a variety of things. No common theme here this week. The PCLOB, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, has dropped its long-awaited twelve triple three report. We'll explain what that is and, and talk about what is and or isn't there. Uh, <laughs> More the latter. Uh, hey, Steve, they closed Guantanamo partially. <laughs> <laughs> Partially, there's there's a building that got closed at Guantanamo. Yes, they closed explain. Camp Seven. This is a big development. We'll explain what this does and does not signify. <laughs> More uh, the latter. Uh, Steve, what's this about? Uh, some DC National Guard legislative action. Yeah. So after you know the sort of developments with the DC National Guard last July, and then again in this January, um, there's some movement on the Hill to give the mayor more control over the DC guard. Um, and so I thought we'd talk a bit about this proposed bill, the, what the, I, I can't ever get the title, right? The uh, DC national guard home rule act. That one. Um, I have some, I, I, I mean, I think it's a good idea, but I actually think the bill doesn't quite do what I would like to see it do. Um, and, and, and sort of a good start, but it could go further, I guess is the the short version. Congress. Get right on that. Seriously. Aren't uh, we'll you listening to our podcast? <laughs> uh, we've got some SCOTUS action, uh, hot off the presses. True. We've got uh, we've got something happening in the uh, Trump uh, comment blocker case off of Twitter, and we have we have both an action by the court and uh, an opinion to parse from Justice Thomas. That's oh, sort of good. Justice and Thomas, just Justice Thomas with his with his normally mainstream views on the First Amendment. Well, we'll see. This I, I think it's a very interesting question of uh, just how representative this might turn out to be. So we'll unpack what it is he had to say. And uh, then we'll turn on the general theme of courts. We'll look over nearby to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which had a ruling about the terrorist screening database uh, that we need to take note of, that we won't go too far into it. Because what we really want to do, my friends, is get back to that baseball talk and other frivolity, because that's what we do at the end of the show, not just the beginning. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm literally, I'm, I'm literally wearing my my I'm calling it Shay T-shirt and Met short, so I'm 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 in it to win it. I well, get, uh, when you get a tattoo of that, then it'll be clear. Yeah. Then it'll be clear you're in it. That's really not my style, but I hear you. No. <laughs> I almost can imagine this might even be a show title, an episode title. Uh, what tattoo should Steve get? <laughs> or what tattoo would he get were he to get one? I was going to say, the answer is none of the above. <laughs> <laughs> this, this has comedy gold potential. Uh, I think of all like the uh, Fed courts nerdistry that if you were to get a tattoo that might uh, you know, lead you to be like, well, I guess I could get that on a bicep. <laughs> so There's a habeas joke in here somewhere. I'm sure there is. Habeas, uh, habeas or, or a gut or, or a, or a, or a, <laughs> I just had the worst. <laughs> the right to keep and bear arms. Oh, oh, ouch, ouch. <laughs> There's a Simpsons episode that has a bit like that. I, I know. know that, well, it's, it's, it's like one of the great dad jokes, right? Yeah. All right. So uh, let's get into the substance and uh, we'll start with the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. The that P-Club, old which, uh So... PCLOB is maybe obscure in some circles, but I think for folks like you and I, it's loomed really large over the past decade plus now, uh, or I guess we should say almost a decade, it's loomed large, especially on the strength of uh, detail that it generated surrounding both the Section 702 uh, FISA Title VII program and the Section 215 bulk metadata analysis program. Um, that's what really drew a lot of attention because in that capacity, which is only a very small slice of all the things PCLOB has done over time, but in those capacities, uh, PCLOB was was very public facing in its work, including publication of just in- endless details about the particular operation of those two programs. 
And, and that just made both it and its capacity to make contributions very visible to the public and to scholars who follow this area. Uh, the truth is most of its work isn't like that. It's not public facing in quite the same way. It's it's guidance and advice to government agencies as they're changing their attorney general guidelines, that sort of thing. Uh, and classified reporting. So of a like kind, perhaps with the section 215 and section 702 stuff, um, but uh, framed and couched in terms that are themselves classified and given both to Congress and to the agencies. Now, with that caveat out there, we've known for a long time on the public side that they have had uh, a study or perhaps multiple studies of executive order 12333 related topics in the works. This has been much talked about and speculated about. And one of the things that I think people didn't really know until recently, until April 2nd, was would there be a 702 slash 215 style big public detailing of the ins and outs for on an unclassified basis? Or would it turn out to go down as a classified, privately facing thing for Congress and for the agencies? And, and we found out on April 2nd, it was, it was the latter. And so we don't really know, and we're not able to say what in particular came from PCLOB's analysis. We're not in a position to say, was it, was it scathing? Was it complimentary? Was it, was it a little bit of this on one program under the 12 triple three heading, but a little bit of that as to another program? Uh, maybe those kinds of details will emerge later, but it's extremely hard to judge from a uh, public facing perspective, what they did with the work that they did. We only know that they did do it, that it's been going on for a number of years. You can tell really only one detail, and I think this was already public that they were doing this. We know that one of the things in particular that they looked at uh, was the X key score tool that NSA uses uh, uh, to manage some of the content that that's collected through NSA SIGINT activities that are not FISA or 702, title, title, FISA Title I or FISA Title Seven type activities, but just general overseas traditional SIGINT activity. Um, the, the published document itself, Steve, my take was this is a really handy sort of introduction to what's in Executive Order 12333 for those who, who aren't familiar with it, who have heard the phrase but don't exactly know what does it really mean to refer to that executive order. It's got, it's got a very you know, accessible sort of here are the origins, here are sort of the major moving parts, and, and then that's kind of it. There's, there's not meat on the bones for the public that wasn't already there as near as I could tell at least from the point of view of people like us who, who sort of teach and study about this. Did it seem that way to you? I, I, I confess I read it pretty quickly. I may have missed something. Yeah, no, no. I was, I was thoroughly underwhelmed by, <laughs> I, I was going to say the report, but I guess the non-report might be the better way to put it. And, you know, I would just, I would really, Liza Goitin from the Brennan Center has a couple of really good threads about the report itself and about the very short separate statement that was released by, two of the PCLOBS members by um, Ed Felton and Travis LeBlanc. Um, and Liza's point, which I think Bobby is basically right, is that the separate statement from Felton and LeBlanc, you know, makes pretty clear that PCLOB felt inhibited from putting out some kind of public report by the pervasive classification surrounding 12333 programs. And I guess my big question is, why is that different from 702, right? I mean, the, that is to say, like, PCLOB put out an incredibly important report about 702, and Bobby, important in both directions, right? Important in sort of tamping down some of the criticisms from civil liberties and privacy advocates about 702, but also in highlighting some of the flaws um, in how the government operates 702. And it just, I don't quite see why the sort of classification concerns in that context were somehow surmountable, but they're not here, um, or at least why the board couldn't have done more to say so, right? As opposed to relying upon the separate statement from a minority of the board. And so, you know, I guess that's where I, I it's, there's nothing substantive to judge. It's the, it's the absence of substance in contrast to 702 that I find difficult to fully, you know, grasp. So I'm, I'm actually hadn't seen their separate statement, but I have it in front of me now. I started looking at it right as you were talking about it. So if I'm reading this right, this isn't necessarily representative of the views of anyone else on the board. It, it's only in Ed and Travis's name. Their perspective is that 
they wanted PCLOB, and, and maybe it is the perspective of others, but it's not clear that this is a majority perspective for the board. They wanted the review under 12333 to spread more broadly than they were, than, if I'm getting this right, than they were allowed to uh, make it. Is that how you understood it? You've read not, not just not just to expand more broadly, but I think they were also they wanted to they wanted to explain publicly why PCLOB wasn't able to do in this context what it was able to do with regard to two fifteen and seven hundred two. And so you know they go out of their way in the state in their statement to say that like it was you know the inability to sort of declassify various details. It was the sort of classification of some of these programs that made it impossible for a more public accounting. Um, and, you know, listen, the PCLOB has sort of multiple functions. I guess I'm just trying to understand, like, it would help to have a little bit more of an understanding of why what was possible in the context of 702 programs, which are themselves highly classified, um, right, is somehow not possible in the context of 12333. I, I, hold on, I just lost the document. Let me make sure I've got it there. So, look, I, I'm a little reluctant to try to express a strong opinion on this having just started looking at what they're trying to say here, I'll just share my, my reaction that it is entirely possible. I guess I think I want to say a couple of things first, uh, as the report itself does emphasize, you know, EO, EO 12, triple three is, is a shorthand that in this context may be taken to gesture broadly towards a vast array of different things that the various foreign intelligence and counterintelligence agencies engage in a truly comprehensive study would would really be something because it would encompass the entirety of the national foreign intelligence program of course PCLOB is only authorized to do this vis-a-vis terrorism counterterrorism related activities they don't have a general foreign intelligence remit they remit specific to terrorism but that said terrorism is going to be part and parcel of, of so many programs I I don't think it's too surprising and not necessarily problematic, is my reaction, if the scope on a program-by-program basis is is limited to some particular programs because of the sheer magnitude of programs that would be overall. The interesting question to me is, um, let's assume for the sake of argument, the right way to think about it is that one could reasonably describe it as there being some hundred-plus non-FISA, non-statutory programs that are part of the traditional overseas uh foreign intelligence collection frameworks that touch on terrorism. Uh, It's probably reasonable to think of some of these as being much more likely than others to implicate U.S. person privacy equities. And if that's right, then I think it'd be very reasonable for PCLOB's work to proceed in a a prioritized fashion and only touch on some of them initially, especially if if there's difficulty in in getting full agency cooperation. we don't. We know. We know one aspect. We think we know with X key score. One aspect of what the focus was on here. We don't know what the CIA relevant foci, foci were. There were two CIA programs they examined. Um, so very difficult. It's it's impossible to judge from the outside whether they were focused on sort of the right priorities. Uh, and it's not clear to me that there would be no further investigation in the future as to other programs. And so. I don't know that I'm terribly bothered to see this particular result. If if it really is the case that there was collective appetite for the PCLOB to do more than it did, but what it was able to do was to work on these three. Uh, and, and part of what part of what I, I dined to know, but of course don't know, is what did they do? How effective was their engagement on those three? Was it perfunctory? I doubt that. Judging by past practice, I bet it was very, very thorough. Um it would be great to know, did they find problems? Did they not find problems? I, I agree with you that it's. it would be great to know more. And in the past, we've seen in some contexts where they did much more. But it also is true that in many, many contexts, we don't hear, we don't even get this much. So it makes it very hard to judge, I think. I mean, I think we're talking past each other. Like, I, it, it should be easy enough for the board to explain why the thorough report it was able to produce in the context of Section 702 despite the fact that everything it was reporting on was classified, was not possible even for the three programs that are alluded to in the LeBlanc and Felton statement. And instead we get, you know, instead we get 20 pages of pablum, you know, helpful pablum for folks who are not experts, but in marked contrast to the utility of the board's prior reports 
this is effectively worthless as anything other than a public education device. It's not an oversight document by any stretch. Well, and it's it's not meant, I don't think this publicly released document is meant to be anything other than, hey, look, we, we, we are not going to, we can't talk about what we just examined. It's and, and I'll say something about the distinction there between this and 702 and 215 in a moment. I think this report is meant to be, hey, but one thing we can do at least is provide an introduction to what 12333 even is, because that is, in fact, the subject of confusion that the public often gets confused about. Now, what's a possible distinction to explain why they don't at least provide more detail about, hey, look, we were looking at this program. Here's some stuff that came out because they did do so much of that with 215 and 702. But of course, in 215 and 702, you know, what one major difference is the step, the public statutory foundations and details, a, a lot of what they did two things with those earlier reports. They described in, in great detail, some stuff that if you were a lawyer expert in this area, a lot of that stuff, a lot of us already knew about here's how it works. And then they went deeper and told us things we didn't know, disclosing to the public because they, because they had cooperation, I gather, on, in doing so from the agencies at that time. Um, so, of course, it's not just their choice. This isn't something where they just get to decide how, how would they like it to be. They had the cooperation. And then having been able to describe exactly how it all works, they then could say, all right, here's some particularity to put flesh on the bones. Here, it looks like two things are different. One, you don't have whatever it is that was being examined. There is no section 215, section 702 detailed public facing statutory framework to refer to, to start us off on that common public facing page. And then it looks like from what we're, what we're seeing in this separate statement that, that there was not cooperation from the agencies to say, yeah, it's okay if you share these details or those details, that's fine with us. So I... But wouldn't that be helpful all, to know? I, let me just say this real quick. I, I agree with you that it's, guys like you and I, we're going to have a hunger for seeing these details. And so I feel that same hunger for the details. Um, to the extent that there's a complaint to be made, I don't think PCLOB's the one to complain about, though. It would be it would be the CIA or NSA that, that you would be wanting to complain about for not allowing details to be published. I'll, I'll just say, I don't even know who to complain about because PCLOB wouldn't even tell us that much. And so wholly apart from its inability to actually conduct public oversight of whatever programs these are, its inability to even tell the public why it wasn't able to conduct public oversight is to me a problem. Well, but do you feel that way about all the other, I mean, they've done a ton of, of activities. 702 and, and 215 were very visible, important ones, but in many ways they were ex the exception to the, to the general rule of all the engagements P-Club is involved in where they're they're engaging in oversight, but they're not reporting publicly about it. Then why issue the report? I think it's better to have this because I don't think they've meant to put this forward as if it was, here's the oversight document. I think it's pretty clear when I, when I skimmed through it, it was pretty blunt and saying, oh, we're not, we're not at liberty. I, I'm actually kind of circled the language here. Uh, we anticipated most of what the board would learn through its oversight project would be classified or otherwise protected information. This is proven true. Accordingly, a detailed accounting of our work is not possible. Um, but we want to summarize, and you know, to paraphrase here, we want to summarize, you know, what we actually did in terms of the process and share things about what twelve triple three is, because the public is confused about that sort of thing. I, don't, I just don't think it's this document's trying to pass itself off as what the seven hundred two report or the two fifteen report were. Well, I think that's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, it, I, 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 so there we can agree that it, it, it seemed like for a while this was going to be a great glimpse behind the curtain, as it were. Uh, and I'm not surprised, though, that it has not turned out to be so. Um, so there's the PCLOBS 12333 report. Um, something happened there, but you got to be on the inside to know what it was. Speaking of this terrible segue, being on the inside... No one's any longer on the inside of Building 7 or Camp 7 at Camp Gitmo. 7, yeah. This, uh, Steve, what was <laughs> Camp 7? Where, where did everybody go? Are they all free? They all went to Camp 5. So, um, right, this has been in the works for a while. Camp 7 was um, one of the sort of sub-facilities at Guantanamo where some of the especially high-value detainees were being held. That's the government's term. Um, and it had fallen into a rather significant state of disrepair. 
you know, there are all kinds of concerns about it, sort of what it was going to take for to reinforce infrastructure. Meanwhile, we're down to 40 detainees in the entire Guantanamo detention program. So, you know, the story that Carol Rosenberg broke over the weekend is that um, the government is now actually moving the detainees to Camp 5. So does that mean everybody's in one building at this point? Um, I don't know if we know that. I know that a majority of the detainees, I think, are now in Camp 5, but I'm not sure if that really is everybody, everybody. I will say this. I, I think I saw maybe it's Carol's story, maybe it's something you circulated. I, I saw it somewhere that the expected savings per prisoner per year was an unbelievable number. It was something, you know, north of a million bucks. I'm, just, I'm just waiting for some Republican to say, look, the Biden administration is moving KSM into Gen Pop at Gitmo. Gen Pop? Gen uh, population. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I got that. Um I would imagine that so some of these buildings at Gitmo, I, I remember this, that some buildings were modeled on a supermax footprint, others not. Uh, do you do you happen to know with building or camp five? What it's- I don't I I've it's been so long since I've actually looked carefully at like the the minutiae of the detention operations. But yeah. I'll, I'll just say that it, it is, you know, <laughs> it's another reminder that we're spending all this money on these 40 people with whom nothing was happening. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and so we should do our weekly check-in or bi-weekly check-in. Um, weekly check-in, still nothing. There's, as near as I can tell, no reason to think we're any more likely or any closer to trial proceedings opening against the KSM uh, and 9-11 group of defendants, um, and nor are we seeing any public hints of major political capital expenditure by the Biden administration to try to cut a deal that would result in anybody being onshored either to stay in military detention status, to stay in military commission pretrial status, or to, to resume the project of trying to shift people into civilian courts um, from the, as we saw last in the early Obama administration. Everything seems sort of status quo, which is, which is indeed the status quo for Guantanamo discussions. Uh, do, have you seen any trial balloons or hints that did a major changes in the offing? I just don't think they want to, Blow a bunch of political capital on it. Um, I think they. Have, I think at the moment they have much bigger fish to fry. But of course, that was true during the Obama administration as well. And by exactly the time they right. got around to Guantanamo, they had lost their political majority. Well, and exactly right. And I think that the same thing ultimately is going to happen here. And uh, is, that, certain, is that a prediction about the twenty twenty two election? What's that? Is that a prediction about the twenty twenty two midterms? Oh, if it, sooner or later it'll become politically untenable. I, I wouldn't dare predict any future elections. I no longer think I have any, any idea how these things work uh, or even which parties stand for what. So who knows? Uh, I just do think that the idea that they're going to spend political capital uh, <laughs> trying to do anything about Guantanamo, I think that the, the, the position that we're going to see is the same one we really ultimately saw throughout the Obama administration, which was uh, saying certain things, but not actually bringing political pressure to bear on Congress to make them possible. Um, I do think, as we've said before, that there probably will be some effort to juice the periodic annual review process, the periodic review board process, to see if that can make some headway. I, I don't think the Biden administration wants to say two years from now that they didn't move a single person who had been cleared for release in the PRB process. Surely at least a few people will make their way out that way, but we'll see. Uh, all right. Next up, Steve. We've got the D.C. National Guard Home Rule Act. What exactly would it do, and, and in what sense is it not what you were hoping it might be? So to make like a long, long, long story short, um, this is a bill that has – it's getting some attention on the Hill. Um, it was – you know, it's – I think that the idea is that it might actually get folded into the NDAA. Um, but basically, it's a bill um, – sorry, that was introduced by Senator Van Hollen – um, and by um, Representative Eleanor Holmes Norton, who, of course, is the non-voting representative for D.C. Um, and the idea is basically that the bill would transfer control of the D.C. National... It would basically convert control of the D.C. National Guard into any other state guard unit, where you know the default is that they're under local control. So here, the mayor would have local control until and unless they're federalized. Um, and the idea would be that this would avoid the problem that arose both last June with regard to how Trump used the D.C. National Guard and je- in January with the sort of delayed federal reaction in, you know, at calling up the D.C. National Guard um, or just deploying the D.C. National Guard, that the mayor would be able to act more quickly and more expeditiously. 
Um, I think the bill as it's currently constructed makes a lot of sense. Um, and I don't think it should be that controversial. I mean, the president would still have the power to federalize the National Guard. Um, he would still have the power to use both the National Guard and the regular military to defend federal institutions, such as every you know federal building in Washington. Um, he just wouldn't be able to use the D.C. Guard like a police force, at least not without the consent of the mayor. But I guess my, my larger concern, Bobby, and by the way, folks want to look it up, it's S-130 um, is the bill number. My, my larger concern is that I think this sort of, it gets at one of the problems that we saw in, especially last June, um, but not to me the bigger problem, which is the increasing use of the National Guard as an end run around posse comitatus. And I would like to see if the, if Congress is going to, you know, consider this, I would really like to see the conversation about sort of National Guard reform take a little bit of a broader ambit and include, you know, we've talked before about 32 USC section 502 F2 and how that was used to, you know, have out of state National Guard troops brought to DC last summer um, without the consent of local officials. You know, I'd like to see that um, as part of a home rule provision um, be amended and perhaps even also modified to make it harder to use as an end run around posse comitatus. So good start, just not enough. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you that if you're going to take on the issue of, of National Guard topics, we have a lot of lessons learned from recent history, and, and that's clearly worthy of attention. I'm a little surprised we're not hearing more about that. Maybe that's going to come later after the you know, infrastructure and, and whatever other you know big-time bills are making their way through. Yeah. Uh, more generally, it, it's funny because you, you live in academia, and there, there's always, at any given time, there's always a big project for, you know, when when my person wins and takes back the White House, we're going to have the following agenda. This is what we need. Right. And they always seem like good ideas, et cetera. But the reality of actually getting bills moving through Congress, of course, is so different from what is a good idea to move through Congress. And I don't feel like we're seeing much uptake so far in Congress of the endless stream of, I'll call them all sort of rule of, rule of law enhancement proposals Um there are a million different kinds of these, but there are a variety of things that were specific reactions to particular things Trump did or didn't do. Yep. It doesn't seem like there's, there's certainly not like a big omnibus piece of legislation uh, like some thought there might be. And we don't seem to be seeing much in the way of bite-sized pieces of legislation either. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, it, it's, it's the right point. I mean, I think the question is, is this something that, you know, either the administration or Democrats on the Hill are just saving for once we're through all the economic relief stuff, um, right? And that, and that you know, they're really trying to sort of keep everyone's attention focused right now on the economic side of this, or is it really because the appetite has already waned so quickly? And if it's the latter, I think that's a serious problem. I, I do, I fear, I think it's probably a little bit the latter. And also that, you know, the, the control is razor thin and you never quite know what might cause you to lose that razor thin control. Yeah. You lose, you lose, uh, certain people and and you don't actually have the ability to run, run things through anyways. Um, of course, if the fil filibuster goes away, who knows what might happen next? Um, uh, yes, it's the filibuster that's the problem. There you go. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, you, yeah, right. Yeah. To my own point a second ago, it's the razor thin majority as it is. Filibuster is not your problem if you lose your razor thin majority. Right. Um, Although okay. the filibuster is also a problem. Yeah. Well, there's that. Um, <laughs> just while so we're let's go across the street to the Supreme Court and uh, we've got we've got a development the Second Circuit's uh, ruling on so Trump when he was on Twitter was was blocking uh, people uh, so they couldn't add to comments etc and the Second Circuit had said uh, that's a First Amendment violation and so reinstate those people uh, Supreme Court says that's old that's old news now. You're not in office anymore. It's moot. So uh, it, it, the, that, that what you just said, I mean, I, I think it's not quite clear to me, Bobby, whether it's moot because Trump is out of office or whether it's moot because Trump was kicked off of Twitter. Um, yeah, so here, here's, here's what they said. Uh, well, actually, they didn't say anything, right? They just Thomas, Thomas says it's about the change in administration. And I, guess, I just want to say I would have wanted to have a conversation. Like, but for Trump getting kicked off of Twitter, I'm, I think there's a good argument. It might have been prudentially moot in the sense that the Supreme Court just didn't think it was worth deciding anymore. I'm not sure, given the relief that was being sought in the lawsuit, 
it would have necessarily been jurisdictionally moot. But, you know, if nothing else, Trump getting kicked off of Twitter, you know, settles that beyond peradventure. Of course, he could, you know, so that's an interesting point. So two things on that. One, I think if it were, if the tenor of the discussion in chambers had been more of the, look, he's not even on Twitter anymore, so who cares? If it had been that, I feel like Thomas might have emphasized that characterization more because that probably would enhance yeah. his argument, which we're about to get into, or at least yeah. it would be something yeah, he probably would have seen. I just want to say that, like, I don't, I, I think that, I, I think that it, it clearly is moot. I just think it's not a hundred percent clear to me that it's jurisdictionally moot because of the change in administration, as opposed to the Trump getting kicked off of Twitter. Yeah, if it was the latter, I'll just say then that was unwise of them to think in those terms because he could obviously be reinstated at some point. But um, but but when he's reinstated, he wouldn't be a public figure anymore. Wouldn't he, wouldn't he, though? I mean, he wouldn't be a public official, but he'd still be a public figure. But, but okay, so here's where we get in the top. But as a public figure and not a public official, he can't violate the First Amendment. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, and, I, and I won't even raise the prospect of him possibly being a public official again. God help us. Since, since that does, in fact, remain possible. So so in the case now awkwardly captioned Biden versus Knight First Amendment yeah, is the University. We need, we need smarter naming conventions and captioning <laughs> conventions because this. Um, so, yeah, so so a lot of attention is being paid to Justice Thomas's uh, opinion concurring in the court's disposition. The disposition. To be clear, the disposition is what's called a Munsingware vacateur, which is where the court grants certiorari, vacates the decision below, and remands with instructions to dismiss in light of mootness. That's uh, named after a 1950 case called Munsingware. Um, and along comes Justice Thomas, who agrees that that was the right disposition. Um, and Thomas pens a 12-page concurrence, Bobby, raising some interesting arguments about social media platforms and the First I Amendment. Found this, yeah, look, this is all clearly responding to current hot topics on everything related to uh, big tech and especially big tech and its communicative uh, platform aspects, which is more than just the big social medias. It's also big search. And I guess we could say uh, big book sales, right? Because Amazon's in here too. And, and in many ways, if, if you follow, this is such a live area of policy controversy with everything from prospects of Section 230 being reformed to sort of culture war type debates that it, that have of late tended to focus on Amazon and books being delisted from Amazon. And he in none of that's all of that's here in various ways. It's I found it a very interesting read. He's he's basically making the point, the, the initial point I think is clearly correct, which is that on one hand, there there's the question of whether when the president has a Twitter account when he's operating that account to do official business, should that should that account be treated as a quasi-public forum or as a, as a public forum, which was sort of the gravamen of the Second Circuit's holding that found, it, that found the basis for the type of scrutiny, which then led it to say that this, the First Amendment had been violated by, by Trump shutting down some critics from speaking back at him and through his through reactions to his account. Um, but that makes it sound like this is a First Amendment tinged space. And yet there is this larger debate out there that you hear a lot about with conservative complaints about social media using its content moderation policies, Twitter and Facebook and others using those policies to, to kick Trump off of Twitter, most notably, but other things like that. And, and the response that they're private businesses and they can do what they want on their private spaces. And so he, he sort of sets up that, that apparent tension um, and then begins to kind of kick it around at great pains to make the argument that you, you sometimes hear in conservative circles about the content moderation activities of these private businesses saying, in effect, look, they're not, this isn't just you controlling who gets to walk into your house or say something in your living room. These are, these are more analogous to common carriers, perhaps, or to places of public accommodation, where the law has things to say about how private businesses are allowed to exercise their ownership controls in those spaces. And so he's providing a bit of a roadmap to suggest that without, without obviously without holding anything, because he can't, but without you know, finally committing to a definite view, but nonetheless saying, looks to me like these are a lot like common carriers and perhaps like places of public accommodation. And therefore it seems to me that there are potential problems with these private businesses uh, exercising their discretion in ways that might impoverish the the public dialogue by silencing some voices more than others, it's 
this is this is really high stakes stuff, but this is definitely a very hot, lively topic of controversy. I'm not. I'm a little surprised to see quite this much effort being made to set out the arguments where it's it seems like it's just a way of trying to join the debate. Um, might have been better as a speech. Well, it's also uh, it's not it's not presented here. I mean the like the question. Well, I mean, like maybe better for a speech than than relevant for this case. I mean, so so leaving aside that this leaving aside that this argument is like incredibly alarming from my perspective. Um, it also has nothing to do with the question. Like the question here is almost the opposite. The question here is whether Trump, when he's a public official, and we all agree the first moment applies to public officials right, is actually maintaining a limited public forum in his Twitter account. And listen, I will happily concede that that is not as open and shut a question as we might want it to be, although I think the Second Circuit got it right. That has literally nothing to do with the question of whether social media companies should be allowed to moderate content on their platforms without, like, the question is not about what Twitter can do. The question is about what Trump can do. And so, you know, it's just, it's misplaced in the first place before we even get to how wackadoodle it is. I mean, you know, the notion that like social media platforms are common carriers um, and are therefore therefore ought to be subject to this kind of, you know, intrusive government regulation. I mean, I thought I thought these were the people who thought that corporations were entitled to full free speech rights, but apparently only corporations we like. So the, the idea that it's look, I am second to none in skepticism about uh taking steps that will empower government officials, no matter who's in charge, which is the right way to think about this, because you never know who's going to be in charge. We're all behind the veil of ignorance regarding who's in office down the road, making use of the tools we might decide to grant the government. Now, I'll take a backseat to no one in being concerned about what happens if you empower the government to start imposing preferences on how um, the platforms run their content moderation Policies. I, I think it's. I that said, I think it's too strong to say it's just wackadoodle. Some of the arguments he's he's making here. Um, there are there are unique elements of concentration of power as to how communication actually works in today's world that are interesting in theory to grapple with. There's a very lively and robust conversation out there, including from those who are coming at this not from the right, but coming coming out from opposite directions who who are not happy with how some platforms fail to exercise their their uh, their governance of this platform. And, 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 and it's actually just, I'm just saying it's really complicated. No, I think there I'm not saying it's not complicated. I'm saying it's not a First Amendment issue. Like I think there's a serious conversation to be had about antitrust. Um, and about the extent to which, you know, we are allowing so few private companies to control so much, right? That is an antitrust conversation. And it's one I think it's important for us to be having. The notion that the fact that these private companies are moderating content in ways that the current, that one political group doesn't like justifies increased government regulation of private companies with regard to telling them what speech they can and cannot support is, you know, strikes me as like solving one, you know, solving one problem by creating another. So uh, I'm no antitrust scholar, but I do know that there is a super big controversy about whether it's properly within the scope of Sherman Act and other analyses to consider things other than than consumer benefits, economic efficiency, and so forth. That's, that's one of the hottest topics in antitrust law right now. I'm not sure it's proper within scope for antitrust analysis to think about what the impact of concentration of power is on on speech itself and the in the quality of our dialogue. So I, I just want because, to put that because of there. the First Amendment concerns. Like you could, but for the First Amendment, you could always modify the Sherman Act to reach those considerations, unless you were worried about the constitutional undertones of you know regulating an antitrust because of speech. I'm just saying I, I just don't think antitrust is necessarily the right way to think about this particular set of concerns. But the First Amendment is. I'm, I literally am only saying that I'm not sure that the antitrust laws are the right frame for this. So I was trying to join the issue with the air a little bit. Um, I think that should be reserved for, for uh, uh, consumer welfare considerations that, that have a different and, co- and competitiveness considerations. But again, that's a super hot topic. In, in, uh, and it's worth noting here that Lena Khan, who is one of the leading scholars of the broader approach, which has a ton of momentum on the left, yep. I believe has been appointed to the FTC. So I think we're going to hear a lot about uh, Nominated. Nominated, right. Uh, there's, that little pesky, there's that pesky little little sort of uh, Senate um, confirmation. Senate confirmation. 
See, that's um, what you get when you when you actually nominate people. Seriously. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't mean to get lost in, in the weeds of this. I guess I'm just of the view that it's an ominous road to go down to start suggesting that legislatures should be revisiting regulation of social media platforms to require them to produce and to moderate content in particular ways. But, you know, it is just Justice Thomas, so maybe it's just an outlier. Um, all that's, I guess, just a long way of saying, stay tuned. Well, and, and my final thought is, as I sat here just reflecting on my effort to try to show that what, what I was trying to say was that what Thomas is saying here doesn't surprise me because there is so much uh, momentum and desire out there. You hear it in conservative circles all the time about um, wanting to ensure a more level playing field. And, and some of this may be political, cynical claims, but there's also genuine concern about whether the the playing field in privately owned social media platform spaces and related big tech platform spaces just as inhospitable. And so some of that is manifesting in the dialogue around Section 230 reform and suggesting, well, maybe we just need to make it easier to sue these people. And other aspects of it is manifesting in a more subtle way, which we're getting a glimpse of here, this idea that maybe some of these places are so big and so central. It's like the claims about how shopping malls in the in the 80s had become the, the new town square. And even though they were privately owned, they were the only place you could speak to a large crowd. This is a much magnified version of that phenomenon. And so you get people who are drawn to the idea that where privately owned space is indispensable to and, and is functionally replacing something that used to be a, a public good provided, like a public street, well, maybe the public limitations ought to drift into that space. I agree. That's a very dangerous idea. Right. And again, you just need to imagine, all, all of you listening, you can all think of somebody becoming the next president or the next dominant political force that would terrify you. And just consider, would you like that person to, to have their hands on the levers in that sort of situation? And to um, be able to tell private social media platforms what content they can and cannot produce. I mean, that's, that's right. you know, I listen, I, it's not that I'm oblivious to the concerns about the power that Twitter and Facebook and these companies have. It's that I think that the wrong answer is giving the government the power to regulate them. Well, I agree. In the name the, of, you know. the right answer is the market. Yes. Although apparently, I mean, the right answer is the market until the market does things we don't like, like boycotting Georgia. And then and then we have to regulate the crap out of the market. Well, well I, actually, I thought you were going to go to what Thomas says. So as you were joking earlier, like you would expect Thomas to be more free market oriented, but he goes out of his way to explain the distinction that's implicit in this where he emphasizes that this, he talks about the network effects argument that the, the big four have uh, have achieved, or however you define the, the set of big companies, they've locked themselves in. And that's that's often a way that one tries to sideline the market argument and say that, um, you know, like, well, th this is different. They, they're, they're now permanently entrenched. To which I say, I've got teenagers, they wouldn't touch Facebook with a 10-foot pole. Right. You know, don't don't expect Facebook still to be dominant 10 but years I, from now. But also, I mean, just and, and just the, the goings on in Georgia just lead me to sort of say, I also think there's, you know, there are principles here, but I'm wary of folks who seem to find only the principles that serve their political goals of the moment, making a big deal out of those principles. So uh, does that transition us? No, not really. We got one more serious topic. I thought that was going to get us to baseball, but I forgot we have one more. There might be a Harvey Wilkinson joke in there somewhere. Um, I, I would not accuse Wilk. I, I would say Wilkinson, whose opinion we're about to stu study here, is very much a, a principled jurist. Um, we've got well, an opinion by... I, it, it depends on what you define his principles as. All right. Well, I, I think I, he strikes me as a highly principled jurist. And this opinion is the latest circuit decision to reject a constitutional challenge to the terrorist screening database system or the TSDB. Um, I wish it would just be the TSD, but you know, got that fourth letter in there apparently. So it's the TSDB. And um, I guess no surprise here, the, the 10th and I think the sixth circuits had already taken this position. So we might've had the pathway towards a Supreme court uh, case if there had been a circuit split here, but the panel they drew was a, was a pretty conservative panel, uh, very unlikely to agree with the lower court, which had found there to be a, a Fifth Amendment due process clause, sort of a Matthews v. Eldridge type problem with the net amount of systemic procedures built into how names get on the terrorist screening database and how one might be able to get one's name off the database. Um, 
I don't want to go into too many details because this really is just sort of the, the third consecutive circuit opinion saying the same thing. Um, the, the court did not find that the nature of, I, th- I think the court expressed particular hostility to the global or systematic challenge aspect here. There's some language in the opinion holding open the possibility of a of an as-applied type of challenge, although Wilkinson's at pains to say that the right pathway there would be more of a Fourth Amendment seizure type of fact pattern, more so than a Fifth Amendment uh, due, procedural due process problem. And, and there's a lot of emphasis on the fact that um, most of the impact, for, by and large, would be limited to instances of secondary screening or, or enhanced screening at the airport, which is much more likely to occur based on random selection, actually, than it is to occur on being on the TSDB. Critically, th- I believe this opinion was really focused on not the people on the no-fly list, which is a subset of the TSDB, where the consequences, by as the name suggests, are more obvious. This is about people who are in those lesser aspects or, or less intrusive aspects of the TSDB, where what it means is you're going to be screened more thoroughly. And it seemed like the takeaway was, look, it's it's not obvious to anyone around you that that you're being pulled out of line for something other than random screening. So you're not suffering the reputational effects uh, that you might otherwise suffer. If they announce loudly, we have a TSDB uh, designee here, we're going to search them. Um, it's not that sort of situation. I think clearly uh, that's not the end of this sort of litigation. There will be other attempts. And eventually, I wouldn't be surprised if the circuit goes the other way. And eventually, the court has to take up the question. Yeah, I mean, I think the only question is whether we might see, given that this is a pretty one-sided panel in the Fourth Circuit, whether we might see rehearing on Bonk here. But I, I, I mean, I think everything you said is right. Yeah. Um, all right. Hey, let's get frivolous. We've been way too serious in this episode. This is seriously bumming us out. Um, okay, Major League Baseball. First of all, as we said at the top of the show, the Mets are finally getting to have opening day tonight. Woo! They um, just posted their, their they just posted their lineup. All right, who's leading off? Let's uh, hear it. Kevin Kevin Pillar. Oh, very exciting. Um, who are you most excited on the hitting side? Give me your top two or three Mets to watch. I mean, Francisco Lindor, the $341 million man. That's official now, eh? Yeah. Um, I just, I, you know, I mean, I, I just, I, I had spent so much of the last like 10 days just getting really excited about baseball as something to like be just generally happy about. And then Friday happened and the game was, you know, the game was canceled or well Thursday Right, the game was canceled, and then there was no game Friday, and then there was no game Saturday. So ugh, everyone else is getting to play. So I'm just, I just want to see baseball that involves the Mets, and I'm, I'm really excited to see Degrom, who somehow looked even better in spring training than he's looked the last couple of years when he's just been the best right-handed pitcher in baseball. Yeah, it. I so, uh, who is his biggest challenge for Cy Young for the NL this year? Uh, you know. I don't know. I mean, the Dodgers are going to win so many games that, like, I could see Trevor Bauer having a really big year for the Dodgers. I could see, you know, any of the other four starting pitchers on the Dodgers winning upwards of 20-some-odd games. I think, you know, but if DeGrom's stuff stays this good, if he stays healthy, he's finally going to have run support for the, I mean, like, you know, he's he's won, you know, two of the last three Cy Youngs with no run support. So I'm very excited about the prospect that he might actually get some offense behind him this year. Yeah, I think that's right. He he could get some really gaudy numbers. Okay, here's a question. Uh, of the rest of the Mets pitcher, who's who's going to emerge as the next best arm out of that crew? Well, it'll be Syndergaard when he comes back. Oh, well, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, assuming he makes a good recovery and they take their time with him coming back. Indeed. Um, um, but of the current crop, I mean, uh, is, is Carrasco going to regain his old form? I'm excited, to see, I'm excited to see Taiwan Walker. I think I think he could be a really interesting addition to the rotation. I think um, I just pronounced it uh, Tejuan. It's Taiwan. Oh, is it Tejuan? I don't know. I don't I, know. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know because I haven't been watching any of the spring training games. So. <laughs> True. Somebody will tell us. Um, I don't think Marcus. I think Marcus Stroman will be serviceable. Yeah. I'm not, I'll be a little pleasantly surprised. No, no, no. he'll be he'll be to. he'll be sort of bomb the rotation. Car- um, yeah. um, meanwhile, I don't. Did you watch the Saturday Night game last night by chance? No. So Karen has this huge trial this week, and so this means I have lots of time to sit on the couch and watch baseball by myself. Um, and the game last night was the Angels and the White Sox, and it was Shohei Otani both pitching and batting. Oh, now that I saw, because he's on my fantasy league team. Um, and 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 he was here's my favorite statistic. He was the first pitcher, Bobby, to bat second in us right to to start a, to to be in the starting lineup in the second position since 1903. 
Oh, um, that's awesome. And then did you have you seen a highlight of what he did on the first oh, pitch? More not only did I see it, but I heard it. Yes. The crack of the bat was unbelievable. <laughs> Talk about the crack of the bat. So guys, if you didn't watch this, Shohei Otani, who is of course the two-way phenom for the Angels, um, in the bottom of the first last night, after throwing like 101 after throwing the fastest pitch of a starting pitcher so far this season in the top of the first, he comes up and the first pitch he sees. When I say Bobby that he pulverized this fastball, I mean like yeah. he like I mean he just it was a high fastball and he somehow got under it and just crushed it. I mean, I've I've never heard a home run like that. Yeah, it was really something. So if you're if you're listening to this thing like well how 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 fun could it be to hear that? Go find, go on Twitter whatever. Find the video. Find, Trust find us. The video. It's and get the volume up and it's just great. It's just yes. so loud. Yes. Um that was a very satisfying thing to listen to. Yeah, I had picked so I had missed out on participating in the live draft in my league with all, all my friends from uh-huh. going back a long time. And uh, um, the auto draft did what it did. And it's, I have an okay team, I guess, as far as it goes. It did get me to Grom with my pick. So that, oh. not pick, so that was great. And then I was looking around for players to pick up. And we're, we're using Yahoo for fantasy baseball. And they at least split Otani. You have to have him separately as a pitcher and a drafter and a batter. You can't have him. You can't have the I, one guy. I guess it would be unfair to draft him once and get both values out of him. I, I feel like that's that's exactly like you should be able to do that. But whatever. I mean, I mean, in the NFL, right? In, in like in like fantasy football, like if if JJ Watt catches a touchdown pass, like you get the credit even though he's a defensive player. And again, you know what? They ought to change that because it matters in the real game. Or if it matters in the real game, it ought to matter in the the fantasy. Here, here. All right, Bob, but, you get on that high horse. But so so one of my buddies had grabbed Otani as a pitcher. And and I just couldn't believe he was sitting there as a batter. And I thought, well, there must be some, you know, something I haven't heard, or maybe maybe last year was bad. And I realized, no, he he. I think he, he had an injury last year or something. Yep. But but I also discount everything that happened last year, yep. last spring. Um, and I was really excited. He's the one ad. I he's the one player on my team I chose, and uh, so I was very happy to see what happened there. Hopefully, he's not actually hurt. So so the so the the play that he le- leaves the game on right is. <laughs> My dad and I, we talk more during baseball season than like any other point in the year. And neither of us could remember a time when we had seen two runs score on a drop third strike. <laughs> <laughs> it was a game of first. It was, uh, and that's part oh, two, baseball. two runs score on a drop third strike when neither of them are earned. Like that's the impressive <laughs> part. That is amazing. Um, let's see. Uh, any other insights about other fun players to watch this year? Are there any rookies you're keeping an eye on? Not for the Mets. The Mets. So the Mets yeah, have overall, sort of in general. They put a lot. I mean, there are a bunch of rookies. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I just, I'm, re- I'm really excited for a full baseball season. I just, I want, you know, I, I hope that the Nationals' travails, notwithstanding, we don't have serious COVID problems. We get in a full 162 game season, you know, because I think, I think it's, it, it could be a fun one. I'm, I'm really interested in. Um, whether the Padres can keep up with the Dodgers, I'm really. I think the Blue Jays are going to surprise a lot of people in the American oh, I agree. League. Watch, I mean, people are sleeping on there. Picking up George Springer is a huge deal. That guy's amazing. But also, I mean, the middle of that lineup with you know the Biggio Bichette. I mean, I, I'm excited. And they just took two out of three from the Yankees in New York, which you know used to be a thing. No, I could I could definitely see the Blue Jays making noise. Uh, going back to the Padres, obviously that's sort of a, a the the NL West is, is looking pretty stacked there. Uh, don't sleep well, on the Astros. I mean, the top of the NL West is looking stacked. I think the I think the Dodgers and Padres are going to beat up on the Giants and D-backs no, that's right. here. It's going to be like it's going to be like an old NL East Yankees Red Sox kind of deal where it's just like two powerhouses. Um, the Astros came out looking like a team that's tired of being embarrassed and ready to be aggressive again. They did really. You, did uh, you see what? Where where were they playing this weekend? Oh, uh, it was the Oakland. You talking about the songs they played? Yes. So the, so the Oakland, the PA now, the, the whoever's yeah, doing Oakland the music Oakland. at the what is it? The O dot Co Coliseum, whatever the heck it's called now. Um, by far the worst stadium in Major League Baseball. Um, like every time there was a, a, a an appropriate moment, they played a song about cheating. Yeah, they uh, they did Ace of Base sign. I saw the sign. <laughs> I saw the sign. Um, they did Carrie Underwood before he cheats. Yeah, um, I get it, and, and actually, I fully applaud the the creativity and the humor. Yeah, yeah. But but I also love it that the Astros came. Out, you know, there's there's relatively few people on that team at this point that were that overlap with uh, what went on before, and it's it's going to be very interesting if they end up playing like a sort of everybody's enemy. Sometimes that can fuel a team a little bit. You know, they start to they start to rally around each other. Yep. 
And they've still got a lot of talent, despite I'm, I'm bummed they lost Springer the way they did. But Alex Bregman's going to be really good this year, yeah. I think, back to his top form. I just I love baseball, and I'm just I'm, I love working in front of baseball games. And it's actually it's an ironic confluence that Karen has a trial this week because otherwise she'd be mad at me for watching baseball every night. But um, <laughs> your job, she won't even be here. I mean, she'll be at her work every night, so you know it works out well for me. Awesome. All right. Well, good luck to Karen in her, her case, and uh, good luck to you with baseball, and good luck go to Mets. the Mets. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, over-under. So the Mets – wait, do we do this already? Do we do the over-under on the Mets record? We I, might think, I think we did, and I don't yeah, remember what did. number I said, so I'm reluctant yeah. to throw right, another number out there. Uh, how about tonight, Bell or Gonzaga? Oh, Gonzaga. Yeah, agreed. Gonzaga. I, I can't – survive the scare. Yeah. I mean, uh, Baylor did look good, but uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm a big away. 12 person. I'm supposed to support Baylor, but I find that hard. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Um, so he's at Bobby Tezzi. We're at, I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Mark your calendars for Monday, April 19th for our 200th episode live show at 8.30 Eastern. Uh, what is that? 3.30 Alaska time. Um, and we'll also be back next week because otherwise it won't be episode 200. No, on no April question. We do, we, do have, we do have some listeners in the UK and, and points east. Are we making it too hard? Maybe we can just ask. We can encourage you. Hey, if you're listening and our designated time slot is the middle of the night for you, uh, we'll take questions in advance too. True. There you go. Um, it may be too hard for them, but I think it's also easiest for us, which yeah. is not a relevant consideration. <laughs> which is not irrelevant. Awesome. Um, all right. So everybody, um, let's go Mets. Happy baseball season. Stay safe out there. Adios.